I was picking my nephew up from school because he's been coming to youth fortnightly. In the car, you might want to wind down the windows. I immediately became concerned. I had flashbacks of my time working in childcare, of the varying ways that a child can become odorous, usually involving bodily fluids. I nervously asked why he'd possibly need to warn me to wind down the windows of the car. Turns out, his mum had packed him durian for his school snack, <laughs> which he hadn't eaten. If you don't know what a durian is, it's a fruit that looks like it could be used in medieval torture. And it's got the combined odour of like blue cheese and dirty laundry. But it's odours radioactive. This fruit can infiltrate a spouseful. Now, aside places, it's illegal to bring a durian. It's that powerful. Now, aside from its odour, it's a good fruit, tastes great in desserts, but it doesn't look or smell that pleasant. In fact, I do wonder if the serpent in Genesis had been trying to convince Adam and Eve to eat a fruit like durian, they might have needed a little more convincing. But instead, the fruit that they ate was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was an attractive fruit. But the consequence of that fruit, the fruit of eating that fruit, was death. It was exile from Eden. It was the knowledge of evil. It was estrangement from God. Yet the fruit looked good. Let's pray. King Jesus, I pray that you'd speak through me this morning, that this would be your message and not mine. Jesus, we pray that as we gather today and look at the idea of bearing good fruit, that you'd help us recognize how you're speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the New Testament, fruit tends to refer to a number of times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit grows and changes us. A number of times in the New Testament, we read of Jesus and Paul challenging us to discern between good fruit and bad fruit, warning us against acts that lead to bad fruit, and encouraging us to live lives bearing good fruit. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus says, You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In Matthew 7, 16 to 20, Jesus warns people about false prophets and says, By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad, good, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Now, when Jesus, and as we'll see in a moment, Paul, articulates these ideas, it seems pretty obvious that we want to listen to people who bear good fruit. We want to be a church that grows good fruit. We want our lives and relationships to have good fruit. 
But going back to the Garden of Eden, as Eve listens to the serpent, if the serpent had said to her, look, the fruit in itself as a food source is good, and no, you won't immediately physically die, as in cease breathing and begin decomposing, but you'll sever relationship with God. You'll become acquainted with evil. One of your sons will go on to kill the other. And by the 10th generation of your family, humanity will have become so cruel, so God-forsaken, that God will consider wiping the face of the planet. If the serpent had put its Eve like that, I wonder how the story... That brings me... That brings me to the problem of food poisoning. Food poisoning sneaky, happily digesting, until you notice that the food wants to, in the words of the Terminator, be back. Like this poor soul who decided to give eating rare chicken a go, no one eats or drinks knowing that they'll soon be experiencing a very intimate form of biological warfare. We eat and drink because we assume that it's good for us, it's nourishing, it's pleasing to our bodies. And because we have an immediate reaction to taste, it's usually only a matter of seconds for us to decide if we like something or don't. And if we don't, we discreetly spit it into a tissue and make sure that we avoided it. But typically with food poisoning, you don't know that you're gonna get poisoned. You find that out a bit later. It's the food that seems tasty, that you think's going to be fine, that sometimes ends up turning on you. The Galatian church seemed to be having a bit of trouble recognizing there was a lot of conflict and mess, fruit poisoning. They were having some arguments and it seems like there was a lot of conflict and mess, judging from what Paul wrote to them. You can read 5, 19 to 21. Bad fruit that Paul was warning against in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Scott McKnight makes the point that Paul divides the works of the flesh into four areas. Sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, Lord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drinking sins, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now, I could be a bit naive, but I don't think people generally do things that have bad fruit or things that are evil because they know it's going to be damaging and awful. People with addictions, for instance, they might know at the time that what they're doing is unhealthy, but at the time giving in to the addiction would feel good. It meets a need at the time. There's a part of that addiction that seems good. I'm guessing that whatever problems and also we might look at witchcraft and also had some kind of appeal. Also we might look at witchcraft and idolatry and think like, surely that's an easy one to avoid. That which isn't ours to control, a God. Of trying to control that which isn't ours to control. I think the church today has a decent amount in common with the Galatian church. The law's been fulfilled and the church was free from offering sacrifices and keeping purity rituals. 
It didn't mean that they were free to spend their time on the acts of the flesh. Rather, it's in living in accordance with the spirit of what the law was trying to achieve. The kind of life perfectly embodied by Jesus. A life where the church was guided and changed by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think we also need to think through what it means to bear good fruit in our lives as individuals. I think we also need to temper that with an understanding that Galatians was originally written for the Galatian church. It's not a self-help guide. Rather, when reading Galatians, we get smacked with the idea that there's no self in Christ. It's us as part of the body. N.T. Wright did, I think, a really helpful video, Paul and Christian Character. And he talks about how, for Paul, character growth isn't a solo sport. It's a team sport. And apparently this was a really different idea to that which many of the Greek philosophers had been, um, I guess, teaching about. The Greek philosophers had been teaching that it was a solo sport, that character formation is about me living my best life, being the best person I can be. But instead, for us as a church, it's a team sport. It's us living in God's kingdom and bringing that culture, bearing that fruit as his people. What I think is also worth exploring is what Paul was contrasting the good fruit, so love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control with. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. The historian Tom Holland, who is not Spider-Man, has been saying about how we as Western society have inherited Christian morality. In one video, he spoke about how the world of ancient Greece and Rome had an economy built entirely on slave labour. How it was fine for freeborn Roman males to sleep with whoever they wanted, however they wanted. In his article in The New Statesman, he wrote, The longer I spent immersed in the study of antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonardus, whose people had practiced a particularly murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill uppity untermenschen, let's pretend I pronounced that correctly, by night, were not killed a million Gauls and known, nor were those of Caesar, who were reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that it continues later the intrinsic value. He continues later in the article to come to the conclusion that today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collective revolution that Christianity represents to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It's the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies 
still take it for granted that it's nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I've learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Some of what Paul was cautioning against were socially accepted norms in his culture. What Paul is saying in, the, in Galatians, what Jesus teaches and radically lives out, is vastly different from what their culture was teaching and embodying. The fruit that God deems to be good, the fruit that the Holy Spirit grows in us, shows how different the kingdom of God is to the dominion of darkness that oppresses the world. We, as the church, living post-resurrection, need to make sure that we don't lose sight of how we've inherited a lot from our Christ Christian predecessors and how much our society has been shaped by Jesus and Jesus' teachings, whether our society knows it or not. Whereas for a lot of people in Paul's time, the moral landscape was not informed by Christian morality. It was okay for a free Roman male to sleep with whoever he wanted. It was fine for a general to slaughter masses of people for the Roman Empire. Now, I think most people are on board with the idea that we should live guided by the Holy Spirit and see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. We should live lives marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I think this is a good and noble aspiration, and I think it's a privilege that this is how we can see the Spirit in our lives. But I think that there's a bit of a danger that we can oversimplify how passages about fruit can translate in our lives. I think there could be a little bit of a danger that because someone faces a difficult circumstance or situation, that we assume the person wasn't listening or obeying the Holy Spirit. I was watching the show The Good Place, and in one of the episodes, the characters are discussing the trolley problem, which is, according to Merriam-Webster, a thought experiment in ethics about a fictional scenario in which an onlooker has a choice to save five people in danger of being hit by a trolley or diverting the trolley to kill just one person. And whilst it's the characters face a, like a simulation where they're put in that situation, and whilst it's, it's a funny show, but it also highlights the horror of the trolley. And I'm hoping that there's no winning. There's no clear-cut happy ending. And I'm hoping that none of us have to live out the trolley problem, but I think that we all face different versions of this situation. There's situations in our lives where there isn't a clear-cut happy ending. There's times where the fruit of our circumstances and decisions don't necessarily neatly reflect love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. If someone's in a position of leadership at work and has to lay off employees, it's probably not going to feel particularly joyful or peaceful. 
people face all these dreadful situations where there's no clear-cut way of feeling like the fruit of the Spirit's there. In Jesus' own life, we see this. We see him betrayed by Judas, disowned by Peter, mistreated by the law and by his community. Then we see him tortured and killed. Hard to see the fruit of the Spirit in that situation. Yet I think we see it in how Jesus meets those challenges. He doesn't gloss over the betrayals. He's not meeting Judas and being like, yeah, you know, it's fine, it's cool, no hard feelings. But he's also not cursing or hitting him. He meets with Pilate, and he doesn't give in to Pilate's narrative. But he also doesn't speak hatefully. Jesus walks the fine line of letting himself be caught in situations of almost guaranteed brokenness. Yet he meets these challenges full of the Spirit. There's no stopping the mess of life. Life will always be messy. The life of the church will always be messy. But we can surrender to the Spirit. We can admit that we can't wade through the mess ourselves. It's through the Holy Spirit only that we can bear good fruit. sometimes more patient or more loving. And I congratulate myself for that moment of brilliant self-awareness before continuing on and forgetting to be more patient or more loving. And so I'm in a situation where I then realize I should be more patient and loving, and so on and so on. We can't grow the fruits of the Spirit by ourselves, at least not in a sustainable, deep level. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. However, again, our good friend, Paul's also telling us the last aspect of the fruit is self-control. Paul's also telling us that we need to be responsible and steward our care. There's things that we can do to help that. The Holy Spirit is the seed that grows the fruit, but there's things that we can do to help that fruit grow and flourish. We can pray we can read the scriptures. We can be in fellowship with other believers. These function as the way that we water, protect, and nourish the fruit that the Spirit's forming in us. We can steward our lives and choices well, but it's the Holy Spirit who will grow and change us, who we can trust to grow and change. In the gardening, we're gifted with the Holy Spirit, who we can trust to grow and change us. Let me pray. Spirit's doing in us and through us. We praise you for your sacrifice and the way that you've shown us how to live in a broken world. Lord, help us steward our characters well, yet help us also have the humility to trust in your spirit. In your name, amen.